Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Deadline City. We are your hosts. I'm Zoraida Cordova. And I'm Danielle Clayton. Where are we going today, Danielle? We're going to Self Pub Parlor with the beautiful Sierra Simone. I'm so excited. Welcome, Sierra Simone. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. A little bit about Sierra Simone for those of you who don't know her. Um, Sierra Simone is a voracious reader of all things, including the smuttiest smut, YA, (laughs) nonfiction. She writes the dirtiest things that she can think of, including King Arthur, tarot, all of these things. Uh, Altar, altar sex. Uh, I just finished reading Saint. (laughs) Um, She used to be a librarian. Uh, you have a very, very long list of activities. And currently you live in Kansas City, in the Kansas City area with your husband, children, and a lot of pets. So welcome to Deadline City. Thanks for having me. We're so excited. Thank you for submitting to our madness. (laughs) coming on here. It's my favorite kind of madness. I love it. Yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm so thrilled because I've always wanted to dive into self-publishing um, and for us to have a conversation about all of the different forms of publishing. I always feel like a lot of podcasts and a lot of blogs and a lot of um, events always cater to traditionally published authors and it's not an inclusive setting. And I always felt like we need to talk about this and talk about that there is a thriving, wonderful community of authors that also self-publish and self-publish super well, like yourself. Um, I have been scandalized by a Sierra Simone classic. Um, <laughs> turning red and sweating. Danielle, literally, I was reading Priest in, in an airplane. This was like when I think when it first came out. And yeah. Danielle was looking over my shoulder and she was like, Wonderful! <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> yes. I was. I enjoyed. I did enjoy it. That's what the that's what the tagline should have been. Like a on the scandal. front cover. It's like yeah. Gasp. Danielle Clayton. <laughs> I know. I was totally like, oh my goodness. I was sweating. <laughs> and it was great. And I loved it. Um, and I just feel like we should I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about what, why you do what you do, how you do it, and for us to have this general conversation about self-publishing um, because people don't realize that it has such a long history, especially in the marginalized community. So many authors who found doors closed to them in traditional publishing found their own readers, found their own community in self-published, in, in the self-published trenches. So let's discuss. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the most familiar with with romance and kind of how it evolved sort of in the romance genre. Um, but it has definitely spanned a lot of genres, uh, sci-fi and fantasy uh, in particular, I think have also been spaces where um, self-publishing has really thrived. And I think that there's a really interesting correlation uh, between sort of the decline of the small or boutique press Uh, and kind of the rise of self-publishing. And that is also closely correlated to technology changing, right? So when you have authors who are self-publishing in the 90s, 
you know, you hear stories about authors having to print their own books and showing up to, you know, bookstores with a car full of books and, you know, trying to convince these booksellers to stock their books. Uh, And then you hear stories of like, you know, you could read something online, but it was in like a web browser or you had to download like, you know, a file and you could only read it on your computer. And so really as technology Uh, became more like lowercase d democratic, you know, so that everyone could access these different ways of e-publishing. I think you start to see more and more authors moving into that space. Um, And I think that there's, um, you know, you've mentioned like self-publishing is a place where people do not have to go through gatekeepers who are going to have biases. And they also do not have to tailor or, um, uh, kind of squeeze their stories into existing categories, right? Um, some of my favorite romance authors that are indie today, I think are really good examples of this. So like Leanne Yutan, she writes um, dark, queer, like lesbian romance. And there's not, even now, there's still not really a traditional space for that, right? So if she had brought that story to a publisher, they might say, well, we love Uh, We love the queer characters, but we're not really here for the taboo part. Or they might say, okay, we could do taboo, but maybe uh, can they be, can it be an MF romance, right? So when you're in the self-publishing space, you don't necessarily have to make the same kinds of compromises with your storytelling. um, And you can be a lot more targeted about the readers you're reaching, Um, And so I think that's one of the ways that self-publishing has really become sort of this big tent, you know, with lots of openings that um, people can move in and out of. I really love that. And I want to just touch back on something that you said about technology changing. I remember reading self-published young adult books in the 90s, like in the 1999, (laughs) the end of the 90s. Oh my God. (laughs) No, seriously. And it like 2000, 2002, I was in high school and I was looking and, and some of the traditionally published authors were friends with other authors who couldn't get their urban fantasy published for some reason. And so they would link to, you know, I don't remember how we bought them, but it was print on demand. Um, And I think that people don't realize how many traditional authors might have gotten their start by just doing this, this thing on their own. Like when publishing doesn't give you an avenue, you create your own, like Sierra Simone was saying. So that is really interesting that I've, that Aragon, that's its origin story. And the fact that there has always been this relationship between, you know what I mean, the two communities um, and that they are intrinsically linked um, in in certain ways. And so it's interesting to sort of talk about it, but I do think the audiences can be slightly different, right? And so I want to talk mm-hmm. about the self-published publishing audience versus the traditional publishing audience and some of the peculiarities and what you found, Sierra, as you've been writing for a long time in and building your own audience in self-pub? Well, so one 
interesting thing that I've found is that um, the majority of readers are not on social media. And it does not feel that way when you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter.com. Like, I think that it definitely feels like um, everyone's here, right? <laughs> like everyone's here in the town forum uh, weighing in. Uh, but I, <laughs> because I can see my numbers, I can actually say like, oh, I have uh, so much more, I guess, reach, like a book has so much more reach than the people you can quantify uh, through social media. And so I mentioned that to say that like readerships are so much bigger than we think they are. And uh, they're so much more uh, <laughs> invisible, maybe in that sense. And I, so what I can say, uh, just sort of based on my experience over the last six or seven years is that, uh, indie readers tend to be very voracious. They tend to read, uh, more than a book a week. Like some of them are reading a book a day. Uh, and part of that is, Whoa! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and part of that is, you know, romance is a very, iterative genre, right? So reading a romance book um, might be a different experience than reading, say, the next like Reese's Book Club book, <laughs> you know, like you might be getting a different sure. kind of reading experience just because of the way the genre is. But some of it is also method of reading. So indie readers are very digital. Um, they mostly read on e-readers or their phones. So they're reading, I think, at times that uh, paper reader, like book book readers are not always reading so they're reading in the lines at the grocery store and they're reading while they wait for the train to pass and you know while they wait at the doctor's office they don't have to get like a cup of coffee and like like the perfect throw blanket and like or go to the <laughs> beach or the park right like yes i mean they like, can they, they can but i i def i think i i know what you mean with like when i want to read like a big book like i'm like oh this book is so like you know, it's like number whatever on the New York Times bestseller and has all these reviews. I need to sit down and like make time to read it. <laughs> yes, I I think that's a really good way to put it. Like there are some books that you make time to read, but when you're reading on an e-reader or on your phone, it's like that technology has made time for you. You know, like mm. it's uh, it's braided itself into sort of the margins of your day into the sort of like little bits, you know, five minute bits here and there. Um, and I also think that another reason that indie readers read a lot is price point. So um, indie sure. books tend to be a little bit cheaper. Um, even then, you know, there's a lot of traditionally published romance books where the ebook might only be, you know, six or seven ninety nine. So not like the full like James Patterson, you know, like fourteen ninety nine price point. Uh, but a lot of indie books are more in that like. $3.99, $4.99 space. So uh easier impulse buys, I guess. That's true. I I am when I see a book that's on sale because I am my mother's daughter, I'm like, oh, I have like a thousand books on my Kindle that I haven't read because I'm just like, it's on sale. Yeah, um right, but right. <laughs> I mean I do the same. Same bro. Same. <laughs> $1.99, $2.99, $3.99, exactly. $4.99. Not too bad. You know, I think this is such a huge impasse in romance, right? Because romance readers have in the indie space have this expectation books are max $6.99, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. traditional publishers are pricing like I had this problem with my Zoe Castile books, right? They're they're pricing the books at $9.99. 
and I'm just like, hey, my readership, the readership that you've given this, these covers, all of this stuff, like you're not giving me trade paperback readership. You're you're like you're branding it in, in such a way that like people are expecting a lower price point, and so you're already setting me up to fail. And because I'm traditionally published, I there's like nothing I could do about that. So that's like right. a frustration when it comes right. to like romance, traditional publishing versus uh, indie pub. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating to um, to think through all of these different uh, considerations, right? Because as traditionally published authors, I don't think I get to set my audience, right? Like the publisher sets the tone for basically everything, right? They're like, this is the cover. This is the aesthetic. This is the audience we're going after. Here's where we're placing the ads. Here's who we want to read your book. Here's who we think your reader is. Here's what the reach we think, you know? So, but with self-pub, you get to sort of curate, like you get to do these things and hope that your audience, you find the audience you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. So different. Yeah, I think that I think of it a little bit like um, uh, synapses in the brain. So like when you're a baby, you have like millions and millions of these synapses, right? And part of growing up is that your brain sort of prunes them. And it sounds like a bad thing to have like less of your brain. (laughs) But actually, the pruning is curation. And it means that you're able to uh, have faster critical thought process, uh, you know, and process sensory information quicker and stuff like that. And I think that, so there's some trade-offs with traditional and self-publishing. And one of the trade-offs is with traditional publishing, you have a much broader reach, you know, you can reach a much bigger audience and you can get to people that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get to in self-pub through libraries and through booksellers and stuff like that. Um, But the trade-off is, right, that you're you're kind of, um, you're casting a very wide net, you know, and so you're going to be pulling back a lot of people who are just not going to be the right readers for it. With self-pub, you might not have as much access, but you can be so much more targeted uh, with your audience. You know, you can really kind of focus on what your brand is and this destination that you want to build. And I think that traditional authors can also be really fantastic at building a a destination, but I do think it takes a lot of publisher part partnering um, to say, you know, this is this is the destination I want to build. These are the stories I want to tell so that over time readers know I can go to this destination for this thing. And uh, and you become sort of known for that. So what's really nice about the indie pub is like exactly what you said. You can really sort of narrow your focus onto finding your readers. So when I release a book, I don't worry about trying to find the, uh, you know, the Lauren Blakely readers or the Christina Lauren readers, uh, the readers who love comedy or, you know, lighthearted books (laughs) or who love, you know, maybe cleaner romances. I don't worry about finding them. I look for the people who want, you know, angsty books that are super taboo. And I focus and tailor my covers, my blurbs, all of my marketing, uh, really to reach those people and say, here, this is for you. I love that. It's super interesting too to think about curation and to think about taking your time to build this, this space that becomes uniquely yours because the Sierra Simone reader is like rabid (laughs) and obsessed with the things that you do. And it's so interesting. And I just feel like there's so many misconceptions, um, about being a self-published author 
versus being a traditional author, also about self-published books versus traditionally published books and the two different communities. I always feel like there's so many misconceptions. One, that it's easier to publish, to self-publish something. And I'm like, actually, it feels harder. Yeah. I mean, I've I've talked to Sarah about this and I'm like, this is a lot of work. Having met, like, been at retreats with um with uh like a hordes of self-published ladies self-publishing <laughs> ladies um i was so fascinated by how much how industrious everything was and i think it's because of those misconceptions right like everyone this is a business and these are all business women and business people and and that's the most fascinating thing yeah i think that um well, I think that there's probably a few layers, you know, to why that sort of uh, division has been there. And I do think that one of them is that um, this idea that marketing or business isn't creative, right? That it's uh, uh, it's not a different kind of storytelling, uh, or if it is, it's sort of a marketing is like a manipulative kind of storytelling, you know, that's for ad agencies. That's not for us who tell, you know, human stories. And, uh, and I think that that sort of applies to openly wanting to make money, if that makes sense, or sort of um, working to make money in a way that sort of supersedes the traditional author publisher paradigm, right? Um, Because I don't think that I don't think that there's an author who's traditionally published who doesn't like making money. Uh, So I don't want to suggest that, but it does seem a little bit like um, the indie community is uh, very open about how they talk about money. And I think it feels like traditional publishing doesn't like to make money. (laughs) No, they want to keep us broke. No, you know, I feel like if I told, if I told like, a self-pubbed author, the advances that we're getting in traditional publishing, they'd probably be like, oh my God, that was like my month last year. Um, <laughs> my month in January or whatever. You know, it's, uh, and, and, and which is another misconception, right? That as soon as you p- press publish on Kindle or whatever, like you're going to, you're going to rack up, uh, you're going to hit the jackpot, but it's just, it's just funny. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that uh, that there is this other misconception, right? That you're sort of taking a shortcut by self-publishing, uh, when really, you know, that might be the case for some authors. So I don't want to make any sort of blanket statements, but there are a lot of authors I know of where I wouldn't say that it's even a shortcut in terms of getting your content out there. So even setting aside all of the admin work that comes with publishing, uh, self-publishing, there's a lot of people who have been working to get their stories out into the traditional spaces, but have been blocked, you know, like they haven't been able to sort of access that traditional space. And so self-publishing gave them a way to get their stories, um, to get their stories out there. And I think that's why, um, you know, there's this really wonderful indie community of queer authors and authors of color who have been able to uncompromisingly tell the stories that they want to tell um, when traditional publishing wouldn't have them. Right. I mean, you know, we, we understand that in, I think in the romance industry, romance is very short-sighted. And, um, I mean, if there's a romance editor listening to this, they'd probably be mad at me, but, (laughs) but it's true, right? You know, I think that like, look at the cases where, 
the boom of self-publishing in 2014, right, with Jennifer Armentrout and Jay, Jay Crownover and all of these books that were self-published first and after they became these sensations – um, then publishers went and picked them up, right? Because it's like, you've created a vision for us to have, and now we are taking, now we're going to uh, bring you up even more, right? And, and yeah. I think that that's just, that's not how, that's not how you create something. And so like, that's like a fault that publishing has for me, where it's like, they'll only do something or take a chance on something after it's already been done. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think you both talked about this a little bit with your fantasy and world building episode uh, with Rebecca. And you talked a little bit about how it's like publishing sort of doesn't have a template for like, there's more than one kind of story from this experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh, I, yeah. And I think that like, sort of the double edged sword of self publishing is that then you prove right that no, there is a hunger for this story and multiple kinds of the story. Because again, indie romance readers reading so many books a week, like they want more than one kind of story from an experience, you know, like, queer readers want more than just one queer book every five months, (laughs) like they want as many as they can read. And so I think that um, what happens is you sort of have this field of dreams scenario where you build it and then people are like, oh, we can do this. But there is a little bit of a veneer of we'll legitimize you, you know, we'll sort of give this the legitimate, you know, package. Mm -hmm. And I know of at least two author and indie authors of color who uh, tried, you know, tried to get their books into a traditional space Uh, no traditional publisher would have them. They self-published, were really successful, lots of buzz, big word of mouth. And now the traditional publishers have circled back to say, you know, we'd love to have you. Yeah. Thank (laughs) you for making our vision for us. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, I, uh, I think that there's some good things and some bad things tangled up in there. Uh, So it's pretty complicated. It's also interesting to see when self-published authors who started in self-publishing go back, go into traditional publishing mm-hmm, and yeah. sort of um, the power that they lose and how frustrating it might be for them. Uh, because I'm I'm like, I'm used to a publisher saying, hey, we love this cover. We hope you love it too. Thanks. Bye. See you later. See you in a couple of weeks. Right? Like I'm used to that. Um, but somebody who's like art directing their own, you know, uh, fall release might not have the same like juicy reception (laughs) I guess I didn't want to call myself defeatist so loosey goosey will go with that (laughs) defeatist I like that I'm gonna gonna remember that (laughs) yeah I think it I think it is interesting and there are a lot of hybrid authors especially in romance you know um like Jodie Slaughter is hybrid now um Rebecca Weatherspoon now, uh, Adriana Herrera was sort of hybrid from the first year she Love started. Um, and so navigating that sort of moving between spaces seems to be really interesting. And I'm kind of uh, approaching that threshold myself. And I think it might be easier mentally if your um, brands have a little bit of separation, right? So like, 
if, uh, for example, you write, like Adriana writes, very um, emotional and uh, sort of like setting-driven contemporary romances for, um, is it Sourcebooks or Karina, the American She's at, I think she's at Karina. She's at Karina. But mm-hmm. then like, you know, her indie books are like, um, <laughs> uh, you know, queer Great British Bake Off and, you know, queer Santa Claus. And so they're a little bit more fun. And Right. And her lesbian of, Santa uh, Claus is great. Oh, so good. Uh, that is her night with Santa, if anyone wants to go find it. <laughs> and uh, and so I think sometimes it's easier if there's um, you're using the different spaces to accomplish different things. So like the book that I had just sold with my friend, Julie Murphy, that is a happy book, which I don't normally write. <laughs> I write sad books. Um, but this one is a, is a happy book. And so it feels a little bit easier to be like, okay, I'm using this publisher to partner with me to help assume some of the risk of trying something new. And I'm using their connection, their leverage to launch this new part of my brand that would be harder to launch on my own, right? Like just for audience reasons, like rom-com readers seem to be very traditionally oriented. Um, And so I think that helps sort of mentally, like, you know, conceptualize the difference between the two. But I do think it's hard because publishers really are trying to reach the largest possible audience. And, uh, and so they're not maybe doing so much of the curation, they're maybe not asking as many questions about what is the cover promising, uh, versus what you're going to get inside. Um, I know there's been some talk online about, you know, there's a lot of covers right now in romance that are very cheerful and like sweet looking. Uh, and then maybe the contents <laughs> aren't <laughs> as cheerful or sweet looking inside. Right. And so that is sort of, yeah. I mean, people pick up a Tessa Bailey book and they're like, it's got a cartoon on the cover. And then they're like, oh my God. Oh my <laughs> God. The there's butt crack. stuff. <laughs> I fucking love that book, by the way. <laughs> so I really think that like, it's, it's a, it's a navigation, right? Um, because publishers have sacrificed that curation for trying to get to the most people they can. They really want that big net. Yeah. So then in a way, are publishers just, I mean, I love, I love being a published author, right? But so I, but I, I am allowed to complain about the things, right? Mm-hmm. Complain about the things you love to try to make it better. So like, is yes. traditional publishing just like you throw things at a wall and you hope something sticks, but in a way, obviously there's, you know, there's teams that go into strategy and, and they really do want to give a book the best possible chance, but in wanting to give a book the best possible chance, are publishers setting authors up to fail when they're not truly, when they're chasing a trend, a cover trend, um, a typography trend, right? Like when they're doing that, as opposed to, as opposed to advertising what's actually in the book, because they're afraid that Mm. they won't hit the target audience. Yeah. So I think that there's like two, two layers uh, of this that I think about. And one is that there is this counterintuitive impulse, I think in publishing, but also in a lot of media, right? Like I see it in movie trailers too, where um, there's this feeling that general is better than specific. So this feeling that- Right. So that like, we don't want to turn anyone off by 
you know, giving anything specific to this insides, when actually it's the reverse is true. It is specific things that um, kind of awaken us as readers and lead us to deeper themes in the story, which might be, you know, global or sort of universal in terms of being like a human theme. But it's those specific things that make us pick up a story. And I think that you can see this sort of like even in Marvel movies, right? Like where WandaVision was like so weird, (laughs) but then it had this huge cult following because it was so weird. Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of dialed into exactly the story it wanted to tell. So I do think that that general versus specific is a is a problem in marketing and in publishing. I also think that no one knows a book better than the author. Right. So uh, Sky Warren, who's an indie author who runs like ads classes. um, One of the questions she always brings up whenever she teaches a new um, ad class is that uh, people say, you know, Sky, can I hire someone to run my ads? Like, I don't want to learn how to do all this. It's really stressful. Uh, can I hire someone to do it? And she always says, you can, but you're not going to get very good results because the person you hire is not going to know your book as well as you do. So when it comes to things like writing ad copy or choosing images, like you're the one who's going to know okay, I can come in through this angle. I can use this quote. I can use this very specific trope or moment uh, or this image matches in this theme. And so I think that there's this idea here that like we as the author know our our work and our product very intimately. And we know our readers. If we've, if we're, you know, we've been around for a while, we know our readers too. Um, and so I think the publishers shouldn't hesitate to partner with authors instead of sort of making decisions, you know, up on the mountaintop (laughs) and then just sort of like it was decreed from on high, you know, like Oz said that we have to do it this way and really partner with authors to to drill into why readers want this book, why this book right now. It's so fascinating because I think that what we're learning with the pandemic is that the old way of doing things doesn't hold up anymore when Mm -hmm. when things change. And I think just everyone having to learn how this curated marketing and like that people want to see content from the creator right up front Mm -hmm. and see them engaging is like helping book sales right we're looking at book talk we're looking at all these new things that have changed the game for everyone um Mm -hmm. and it's interesting to see what's working and what's not working in both communities um the traditionally pub community and the self-pub community. And I kind of wish that I could take that class that you're bringing up because it would help me even learn more about the marketing of traditionally published books and maybe how I could find an entry point into it. Because I do think that there is a divide in the community and like a weird little beef. And I think the beef is always started by the traditionally published authors thinking that they're better or that they're they're like somehow winning, right? Winning, right. hashtag yeah. winning. Like, and it's like, well, no, because our royalty rates are so low <laughs> that I don't actually think we're winning, but someone has diluted traditionally published authors into believing that they are. Right. Because there is the distribution aspect and we're in like bookstores and there's the opportunity that someone might find us in a bookstore when they're browsing. Um, but I also want to say that like the, 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 the thing that like I've heard most about people looking down at self-publishing is that it's not good on the line level. And I'm like, I feel like every single Sierra Simone book that I read is 
better at the line level than some of like the Reese Witherspoon <laughs> book picks, right? Oh my God. And <laughs> you're gonna make me hide under my desk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> Not her specifically, just like books and ge- I mean like highfalutin books. Um yeah. No, God forbid I, I become one of those books one day. <laughs> <laughs> you know that inheritance of Orchidia Divina? Oh my God. But like, you know what I mean? Like, like authors that are like books that are considered highbrow or like, like, you know, this is literature with a capital L. And I'm like, I'm going to tell you, I find typos in all of those books. So when people are like the quality control in self-pub books are not XYZ. And I'm like the quality control in, in traditionally pub books also have you know because it's human error 17 people read a book and a typo still makes it to the end right Mm -hmm. so it's not Mm -hmm. like you can't use that argument anymore right um because self-pubbed authors definitely use editors and copy editors and this is the thing like if you want to self-pub and i'll let you talk more about this like self-pub and like a, a, a way that gives you the best chance you will do all of these steps which you can outline later on yeah, like I I really think that it's important to remember that like the there's what 8 million books on Amazon right now or something, you know, like the the pool is huge. And so it is really easy to find books that maybe uh feel a little rough and ready, I guess. Um but that's I don't think the case with the books that we're seeing uh, consistently be successful. Like the authors who are consistently uh, breaking that top 100, um, you know, like your Kennedy Ryan and your Theodora Taylor and, you know, the people that you're seeing uh, as hugely popular, like they're producing books at a at the same quality or better um, than traditional. And I say better just in the sense that they're like, they are more specific than general, right? Like Theodora and Kennedy both write to very specific Uh, stories with very specific characters and premises that nothing has been sort of um, sanded down, I guess, uh, for that bigger audience. It's really fascinating to think through all of these different um, considerations and it, it makes me wonder why more authors aren't hybrid. Like I've been thinking about it for a long time. There are stories that I want to tell things that I want to do that might lend better to that other audience. I mean, I'm a person who studies everything. So before I even dip my toe in there, I would go to the school of Sierra Simone. Like I would like come <laughs> and like worship at your altar and like- It's actually oh the church of Sierra Simone. I just want to let you know that. Okay. She's a goddess to me, okay? She's a goddess. So we're like, she has her own stuff. Okay, you don't have to put your Judeo-Christian analog on top of me. No, okay? but look, her 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 fan club is called the Lambs. Okay? I know. Okay, headed for slaughter, honey. Like I get it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I would do my research and I would really deeply think and respect the self-publishing process because it's completely different. And I want you to sort of give us like a short snapshot of like what it is and like how you how you do what you do um because you're doing it well your covers are some of my favorite covers ever thank you sexy it pays to be choosy i think in that case and that actually goes back to the first thing that i would tell any author getting ready to step into an indie space is that you 
uh, should spend some time knowing who you are as an author and what you want your brand to be. And by brand, I don't mean <laughs> the colors of your website or a logo or business cards necessarily, like that comes later, but essentially like what's your destination, right? Like if you're this tree in the forest among all the other trees, what does your tree do that no other tree does? You know, like what kind of shade do you offer your readers that no other tree does? And just really knowing your destination and what you want to build, because I think that that will help inform all of the other minutiae later, um, especially things like covers, right? Because then you can really search for images and designers who know how to make covers that will hit the notes that you want to hit, you know, knowing that brand, knowing the kind of storyteller that you want to be. Um, so the usual process is that after a book goes through, it's the same kind of writing, you know, I've drafted it, it's been read by betas, I uh, cried over it on my own, and, you know, imported their notes. Um, I have a production process that has uh, two editors. So I have dev editors, um, and then I have copy editors. And then after that, I hire a separate proofreader, um, just to try to catch everything. What was your first editor? What did you what was that word? Uh, dev editor, sorry, like a developmental editor. Okay. Um, See, we're learning yeah. the we're learning the jargon. <laughs> <laughs> teach us, teach us. <laughs> um, and so this is like this is around the time that if you're producing your own audiobook, that then you would get your manuscript to the to the narrators. And the good narrators book up like six months in advance. So you have to like really sort of target in on a window of like, I'm going to have this book turned into them so that they can start recording, you know, by this date. Um, if you're not recording an audiobook, then you're, you know, there's a little bit more flexibility. Um, and so after the book has been completely um, edited and proofed and it's ready to go, I use a program called Vellum. Vellum generates the ebook formatting and the print formatting uh, for like all the vendors. So if you're not in Kindle Unlimited, then you use Vellum to, you know, make a Kobo specific book and all that stuff. Uh, I update all of my back matter in the book. So um, ebooks usually or should, if they don't, then someone's done something wrong, have dynamic back matter where readers can click through. Um, they can see all the books in your backlist and those are clickable and that will take them right to the storefront. Um, because you really, the end of a book is a place you don't want to lose a reader. Mm. Um, one, th one thing that I really like about self-publishing that I think a lot of traditional publishers should uh, start adopting this is right after a reader reads the end in a self-publishing book, you can format it so that it's immediately like, hi, did you like, you know, altars and kiki things on altars, then you should read <laughs> priest and it'll take them <laughs> right to priest. Um, <laughs> as opposed to sort of hoping a reader makes it to the also written by Sierra Simone section. Um, so that is kind of what goes into packaging the book. You have to upload it to the vendors. Some people use an aggregator like draft to digital uh, that will distribute the books for them. I don't because D to D takes a cut like 10% or something of your royalties. And I don't want them to do that. So <laughs> I upload everything myself. Um, 
you would then really sort of pivot to focus on marketing at that point. So as a as an author, you source your own cover. So that means working with a cover designer, uh, maybe working with a photographer. I've done some custom shoots for my books for American King and some of the Thorn Chapel books. Uh, that's a process that you need to start pretty well in advance of release. So you're kind of toggling between that marketing brain and that drafting brain uh, as you work, just to make sure everything's ready on time. Um, you're responsible for sort of, uh, distributing your own arcs to your readers. A lot of authors will have like an arc team, like a street team that does this. Uh, you'd be responsible for updating your website, uh, sending out newsletters and maybe running ads on like Facebook or Instagram. I don't do a ton of ads cause I'm not very good at them, but <laughs> that is uh, what a lot of authors will use to sort of boost their release is Facebook ads or AMS ads on Amazon. So there's a lot that kind of goes into it, uh, but I really do think that it's good to expect to scale up over time. So I wouldn't give my uh, production and release and marketing checklist to like a new baby author, right? Like I would kind of isolate like three or four things that I think are the most important for launching a book. And then over time, as you start to sort of build in a routine and figure out what works for you and what doesn't, you can start braiding in more and more of these things. Like audiobook production is something that I'm kind of like, have only really started doing in the last couple of years because it's just an extra administrative, um, you know, workload. So I would say like, it's good to sort of isolate just a few things that you can do to make sure you have a professional package. And that would probably be editing and cover design. That would be where I would spend my most uh, energy and money and time uh, is making sure that the insides are perfect and that the face of the book is perfect. Cause I think the right cover is worth thousands of dollars in ads. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of in a snapshot. I feel like I'm probably leaving a million things out, but that's what I can think of right now. <laughs> I mean, it's a really great place to start, especially when mm-hmm. you're, if you're going to do this for the very first time, um, you don't, you don't want to overwhelm yourself. And also you don't have like readers to send a book to yet, right? Like you have to start mm-hmm, somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you start with the text. Yes. Right. You really focus on yeah. your story and making sure your story yes. is as best as it can be. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, I mean, this should be the expectation in any, any arena of publishing you're in, but especially to indie authors, I say, you know, what you're really focusing on is building, like building that destination. And so it's more important to do the same thing consistently. And by that, I don't mean like your books need to be a clone stamp of each other, but just that they're kind of vaguely in the same subgenre, you know, they're kind of scratching the same itches uh, for a couple books in a row or three books in a row so that you really can start building that destination. Um, You know, if you release one book, and even if it's fantastic, uh, but you know, you're still new and no one's found you, don't give up, right? Like what we're, this is a long game. The goal isn't to have a right out of the gate success. Like the goal is to be here in 10 years. So how do we get to that goal? And that's the question we ask ourselves in traditional publishing too, right? How do we stay here in 10 years? How are we still here? How do we survive all of the ups and downs? And so that's why I feel like our communities are more connected than we think. And it's one of the things that I want, I want the two communities to work on, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And I think that like the, the beauty of self-publishing is that when there's ups and downs, no one else is passing their ups and downs onto you, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like if publishing, traditional publishing is contracting, then self-publishing doesn't necessarily have to either, right? Like you're not absorbing some corporation's uh, budget, you know, reduction. That's not like something that you personally have to experience uh, through your career. Like when you're self-publishing, it's only sort of the bigger vagaries of the market that you're that you're experiencing. And that's that's kind of nice. There's some freedom in there. And that's why I think being a hybrid author is like <laughs> the best way to go. It like diversifies your portfolio. Um because you're you're getting some of the great parts of working with a publisher and partnering with them to get your book out there uh, and into the hands of gatekeepers and you know in spaces like libraries, which are very important to me. But then also yeah. like I have a part of my you know oeuvre that is sort of insulated from a publishing effery. <laughs> Try not to swear too much. You can swear on this podcast. Well, me too. <laughs> and we I love the term. Ouvre. It's a beautiful word. I love it. <laughs> the first time used on Deadline City. I'm here for it. Um, but it is just very interesting. And I just really want writers to know that the sky's the limit in terms of the types of things you can write, in terms of the types of audiences you can have. And like, you can do a lot of different kinds of things. Um, and it makes me really excited about like where both communities are going. And the fact that you can participate in both, I really don't, I hope that writers don't feel like they're isolated. I mean, it's, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's two things, right? For specifically for marginalized authors, we want to be in the traditional space, right? Because I feel like we've been kept out of that space for so long that, you know, publishing has, publishing has to change, something has to give. And it, the change has been slow coming, right? But how do we diversify once we're already there? Because we understand some of the realities of traditional publishing. And so it's, you know, I just, I don't think that there, there's not one road when it comes right. to this writing career, right? And also, um, you know, people always say like, oh, if you can't make it in traditional or if you get rejected, then go to self-published as if that's like something. No, 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 no. Stories need to be good in both. However, I remember a very famous writer named Joyce Carol Oates um, <laughs> who told me, uh, she just started attacking me online because I was in the New York Times, that I should just go self-publish if I had issues with traditional publishing blocking Black content creators from having their stories that I should just go self-publish and do my own thing. Um, basically cough separate, but unequal, right? Like wow. she basically told me to get my own water fountain. Um, wow. And she was really nasty about it. And I got doxxed by white supremacists and Nazis from having wow. like three interactions with her on Twitter because she shouldn't be on Twitter. I wish her grandkids would come get her. Oh, but right. like- Her it's, great grandkids, shit. Her great grandkids. Uh, I yeah. think that, and also <laughs> like, this is, this is, this is this woman telling Don, the Danielle Clayton- uh, your face. Uh, New York Times bestselling author, uh, CEO of her own company, and and like, and COO of We Need Diverse Books, being like, "Oh, that's sweet. Go self publish, right?" Like, you're not yeah. in touch. This is where yeah. traditional publishing is out of touch with like the up and coming people who are making changes. 
Right. I was just advocating for sensitivity reads and authenticity reads and making sure that your books are good. That's it. Just like you look for, if you're writing about a lawyer and you're not a lawyer, you ask a lawyer, like, what's the terminology? Same thing applies. Um, and she didn't like that. And and she just literally was like, then you go self-publish as if that's a place that's supposed to be a place where I can thrive because I can't make it in the, you know, the big, bad, uh, the the great white way of, of publishing. Um, and it was super frustrating, but I also didn't like her casting aspersions on the self-publishing community because also that is its own ecosystem and it has its own, own big talents and like super interesting content that's happening. And I just don't like that. I didn't like it at all. Well, and I think that what I, what's, what is a good thing, right? Is that, um, we can like dismantle, um, like white supremacy and homophobia and transphobia from sort of both sides, right? Like from the inside of traditional publishing, like authors can get into those spaces and use them and transform them. And then indie publishing allows authors to find their readers in the meantime, right? And also, like, I do think that this next generation of readers does not distinguish as much uh, between, like, indie and traditional publishing. Like, a lot of them are used to reading content on their phones, whether it's traditionally published or not. And not even, like, from an ebook retailer like Amazon, but on, you know, apps like Radish, or they're reading fan fiction on their phone. And so I think readers are finding these stories that matter to them in indie spaces as well. And that then creates demand and pressure on traditional publishing to say, where, where are more of these stories? Like we want more of these stories. And so I like that, like we can all work together really to sort of tear down um, these, these structures of oppression that exist in traditional publishing. I love that. I love it. I love it too. I love it too. And I just think that what you're doing in the self-publishing community is extraordinary and you are a wonderful author oh, and I just love you. all of your work and I'm excited to see with you what you do with our other boo, Julie Murphy, who's going to be so mad that she has not come on Deadline City yet. Oh my gosh. That is so funny you say that because I was on the phone with her earlier and she was like, tell Danielle and Zoraida that they haven't invited me to be on their podcast. <laughs> we did, first of all. <laughs> I'm feeling attacked. I'm feeling attacked. Look, Julie Murphy is bad on her text messages so I'm going to get at her as soon as we finish. But how dare she? We have been after that queen for years to come on here and talk. So she's, she's mad that we got all of her beloveds on here. Yeah, we literally she's have like, Natalie, yeah. Tessa, you first. <laughs> I think she's like a she's like a human cat. You know, she wants to be yeah. chased. <laughs> You're like, leave me alone, but then pay attention to me. Yes, exactly. yes. I'm like, you little turkey i love you julie murphy and you will be on deadline city trust me so. oh my goodness i want to ask you what are you reading right now and enjoying well i just finished this gorgeous magical realism book called uh orchidea divina and it was so good <laughs> melted my face off it was so good it also has a very sexy toxic circus master which i was not expecting but i'm so in love of, with oh like he's God. just so toxic and yet yeah. and yet i and understood yet. i understood yeah, all it. the characters decisions 
Um, and I am in the middle of Real by Kennedy Ryan, which Oh my is, god, I just downloaded that. Oh my god, it's so good. It's so good. And it's um it's about a director and an actress, and it's not uh creepy. Like I think that sometimes you can imagine like a bad power differential there, but it's she does such a good do- job like contextualizing it. That's not at all a part of it. And the like the prose is just beautifully written. It's so like lyrical, like it almost feels like someone's singing to you or like you're reading poetry oh. as you're reading it. But what I love about Kennedy is she's not afraid to go there. <laughs> you know, she does she makes a lot of choices about what's going to happen to her character uh that I think a lot of romance authors would be shy to make, you know, like uh I'm not going to I'm not going to have this character experience this huge uh, you know, heartbreak in in the first 5% of a book, but Kennedy is like, "Nope, we're doing it. We're going in there." So it's just gorgeous and emotional um yeah tickles all the like movie ids I think and history ids it's great I love that and I love Kennedy Ryan she's amazing so good so So good good. and this book has like one of my favorite covers of this year and I'm obsessed with the cover model socks (laughs) like she has these sheer socks I'm obsessed with them (laughs) we're gonna put the we're gonna put the cover of all the books we've talked about in our show notes, but like, I need everyone to go look at this cover. It is so sexy. It's oh, very yes. like, it, it's so sexy without showing any like actual skin, right? Like there's yes. no like abs, but it's, it's, it's sensual. That's the better word. Yes. I, that's exactly it. It's Amazon safe as we say in the indie community. Cause Amazon won't let you like run ads on a book that is like, you know, there's like a, like some side boob or whatever. <laughs> so this is, <laughs> This is, this is Amazon safe. It's so good. It's so gorgeous. That's kind of hilarious. Oh my it's God. Hilarious. Oh my goodness. Look, things, <laughs> things we don't, things we now know about the trade. Um, <laughs> but oh thank you, Sarah Simone, so much for hanging out with us and telling us all the things about self publishing. And it's a great place to start. Um, I hope everyone checks out your books. The most recent one is Saint, which had me feeling so angsty. Um, <laughs> so angsty. I love that book so much. And it is my favorite of your covers of that series. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I had a great time. And I hope that some of my, like, you know, mouth words, brain soup, like just <laughs> scattershot talking, uh, cohered into something, you know, worthwhile. Yes, it did. This is a gem of an episode. And thank you so much for visiting deadline city that's it for this week's episode of deadline city thank you so so much for listening in our goal is to demystify the publishing industry and count on listeners like you for your support if you like what you hear comment subscribe give us five stars and share the episodes check out our patreon and ko-fi information at deadlinecity.com support see you next week And for now, ride on.